Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, and today a new topic and a group of students that have been here before. Let's do some introductions. Let's start with you, Danny. I'm Danny Hansen. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Danny, you may be uh, among the most recorded students at this point. How many podcasts have you been involved in? I might have to count. It's at least seven. That's kind of amazing to me. Yeah. I'm sorry and thank you. <laughs> it's both been at the great. Same time. And uh, Kristen, who, how many times have I called you the wrong name in this rotation? <laughs> Only maybe four times. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, it's better than I thought it was. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but uh, for some reason the name Jessica stuck from almost the beginning, and I, I had to stop every time and think, okay, not Jessica, but Kristen. And Kristen, that's... Uh, I think I mentioned you earlier today that I've had more students than I anticipated over the last two years, in part because of the coronavirus making it more difficult to place students. And I think I mentioned that it might be time to have a month off. Yeah, we'll see how that goes ahead of this. <laughs> I'm very, very glad, though, that you were here for this rotation. You picked a topic that I think is something I've looked at a number of times and been afraid to engage in. So I've read about it. I have had some awareness of it, but clearly don't know enough about it. So how about if you introduce yourself and how you chose this topic? Yeah, so my name is Kristen Kapustinski. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Uh, and I picked the default mode network as my topic. And it is just as much neuroscience as it is psychiatry. And that's kind of what I love about it, though. It's a little bit more of an objective way to look at what, an ex what a person is experiencing. And it's kind of the closest you can get to reading someone's mind, which I don't know what that says about me, but yeah. Hold on, picking the topic doesn't read your mind. No, but uh, looking at fMRI studies about what someone might be thinking of is maybe the closest we've got. I think I see where you're going with that. All right. Uh, so let's delve into why that might be the case after you tell us uh, kind of where you're headed. So you're in your third year. Most people at this point are either clearly going to be uh, orthopedic surgeons or they're undecided. I didn't say that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, some people have uh, more of an idea what they're doing at this point. Some people are still trying to figure out the things that are interesting to them. Where are you at in that decision? Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out. I have a hard time giving anything up, and so I might just find myself in family med or internal med because I just like it all. It's all very yeah. cool stuff. One of the great things about medicine is there really are a number of careers involved in medicine that allows you to find something that fits, and I've told many students this before. It's not just uh, the type of medicine you pick. It's also where you, where you practice. Those things are equally as important, I think. And Danny, I think you and I had that conversation at some point. Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll have that conversation before you take off tomorrow, Kristen. We'll see how that goes. So let's start off uh, with default mode network, all right? I think there are a lot of ways to try and tackle this topic. To me, uh, the idea of how the topic evolved, how it was sort of figured out, makes a lot of sense. You and I read one author primarily who was involved in the discovery of the default mode network. I think he's bitter that he didn't get to name it, right? <laughs> You're laughing. And this guy is difficult to read. There's a, the language he used, in my mind, creates a lot of ambiguity in his articles. You and I spent uh, a period of time talking about what we understood from the articles, how we would describe it. I don't think it's just uh, Dr. Reichel who, who has a tough time describing this. I think you and I also struggle with the same kind of thing. So uh, we're grateful to him for figuring this out. And now how are we going to going to explain what we read and what it means. Yeah, um, sometimes I feel like the easiest way to explain it is to go through how they discovered it, like you were saying. Um, Rachel is a little bit difficult to read, um, but we can take a stab at trying to explain it. Um, the default mode network seems to be like a mode or a gear that your brain slips into during a wakeful rest when you're not really doing much of anything and you kind of get spontaneous cognitions. Um, and it's sort of like mind wandering or daydreaming, although no vocabulary really perfectly explains what it is. I don't think Rachel likes that term no. daydreaming, but I'm not sure. It's, it's ambiguous to me, right? Yeah. So, so um, the story of how this was figured out is so fascinating to me, and I, I, I really am impressed, even though, I, like I said, we, we found him somewhat difficult to read, how he 
kind of stumbled onto this is, is pretty cool. So let's go back. I think we're going back to the late 1980s and into the 1990s. And uh, there is there are two ways to perform imaging in the brain that are important in this story at that time. The first is the ability to measure blood flow. And I think we agreed that PET scan allows you to measure blood flow in the brain. There was a statement, you're nodding yes, so I think I'm still on the right page here. Uh, you're nodding yes. Um, there was an interesting comment by Reichel where he said, but that's no surprise, we knew that if a brain was performing a task, blood flow increased. Scientists have known that for 100 years. And we were like, uh, really? Did I was we, anyway. Did we? Did we? We did. <laughs> okay, we, we knew that. Um, and he said, okay, so, so we know that blood flow increases based on task activation in the brain. So if you're doing a specific task, blood flow increases. And then he started to get confusing. He said after that, and stop me if I'm wrong, he said, we can also look at fMRI and see how much oxygen is bound to the hemoglobin. Am I still on the right right page? I believe so. And any neuroscientists are welcome to contact us and correct us. We're just a bunch of non-neuroscientists trying to explain neuroscience. <laughs> In the best way we can. Now, the next part gets a little more challenging, and I'm not sure how important this is to understand default mode network. But the next step he said was, even though we know that blood flow increases, the percentage of oxygen in that increased blood flow that is taken out by the cells that are active in a task is actually less. It's still an increased demand, but there's a dramatic increase in the blood flow and there's a modest increase in the metabolism. Are we still in the right place? Yes, that is what I understand. So, so they start looking for places where fMRI signal shows less blood flow, or less, I'm sorry, whoops, less, uh, more oxygenated blood. So if you see the blood oxygenation ratio go up, then you know there's a task going on in that place, right? You can see the task happening. Now, there are a couple of things that are very interesting about this. First of all, um, well, th this is where the story gets interesting. So so now take me to Reichel, who's who's got like, they're, they're doing tasks, they're working with psychologists who are trying to figure out what part of the brain does what, and what does he see? What, what's happening? What's going on in Reichel's brain? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on in his brain, but I can try to describe what they were seeing was when they were having um, test subjects perform tasks, um, certain areas of the brain would light up, but pretty consistently, certain areas of the brain would decrease in their blood, blood flow and metabolism. So they, they saw that when a, a person performed a task, let's say it's like a motor task, so they're trying to build blocks or whatever, the motor areas would light up, but there were some certain central areas that would kind of not deactivate, but dampen in response to them performing the task. And then when they stop performing the task and they're just resting, um, that area seemed to bounce back consistently. And even when I'm reading the, the articles he published, right? So there's an article in 19, or in 2001? I think that was the... the, the that was sort of the index article that he yeah. referenced back to. There was an article where he was a grad student, it looked like, with Schuler in uh, 1997. Um, and then he, he writes this review in 2015 that I think we draw a lot of this experience from. And, and he says something sort of interesting to me. It's like he's sitting there kind of going, you know, I was staring at these uh, scans and I was struck by something. I was like, huh, we really don't know what the baseline is, right? And now here's something weird. It looks like this... Uh, the stuff in the back of the brain, the posterior cingulate and the precuneus, you're nodding yes, so I got those right. He says uh, they, they kept getting deactivated or, or less active. And so he says, he says this really interesting statement in uh, one of the articles. He says, this was in the 2001 article. He said, uh, heretofore the uniformity of the OEF, which is a measure of the uh, amount of oxygenation of the hemoglobin, and, and again, there's a better definition. I'm just using that for simplicity at the moment. Heretofore, the uniformity of the OEF at rest state 
has not been considered in defining a baseline state of the human brain. So he says, yeah, you know, by the way, we don't really know what we're comparing all these things to. Am I, is that kind of how you saw yeah, this Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good observation and actually is a good point that some of the other papers made is like when you're having a person perform a task, is it that you want them to go from the restful state? Is that the default or do you need them in a task state? And what, what is the default? kind of baseline state and how and how can you use it in research and I like the way he wrote about that afterwards he said something along the lines of we chose the mean OEF eyes closed dressing state is what normal is and I thought well, okay you get to choose if you're defining the network I, I guess you get to choose it right so so we now have these two signals are these two ways of measuring blood flow blood oxygenation and task activity and some people are doing these tasks and looking to see what part of the brain becomes more active are involved in hey how do I prove what the brain is doing when it's doing X Y and Z and you have a guy who kind of is sitting back going well I kind of wonder what the brain's doing when it's not doing the task because I don't know that we have that question answered and I think this is a great question this is really a remarkable question and it seems like at the time it was something that nobody had really considered the way Reichel describes this process. I was very impressed by it. And so he says, well, let's start looking at this. And along comes a name for this network. Talk to me about the naming of the default mode network. Uh, it seems like in his original 2001 paper that a lot of people have referenced since, um, they kind of just called it that because that was just eyes closed restful state. And then everyone else took it and ran with it. I'm not so sure that he's happy with the name. No, I don't think so. I don't think he was yeah. the one that used the name, in fact, the first time. He used uh, default something or another as the name. And, and you mentioned how many times this paper has been referenced. The 2001 has been referenced. I think referenced. it's around 3,000 times. I think it's around 12,000. By now? Yeah, because oh, so yeah. We, we looked at it, I think the article in 2015 that mentioned nearly 3,000 references. Um, that, that paper has shot up in the number of references. At least, it might be the Schuler article that's referenced uh, nearly 12,000 times. But among these articles, this is now a, an area of research that has become phenomenally um, important to a lot of people. Now, th this network, he originally only saw it as the, the back half of what appears to be a larger network. Tell me what the key parts of the default mode network are and I think once we understand or once we've talked about the default mode network, let's talk about what it means to have the default mode network either less active or normally active. And then let's talk about what happens when that default mode network gets messed up. How does that sound? Yeah. All right. So what was the, what was I said? Uh, let's go through the parts of it. Let's go through the parts of it. Oh, actually, before we do, can I do one other thing? Now, I asked Danny to take a look at one other thing. So the the default mode network. Default network mode. Default mode network. Default. <laughs> what am I trying to say? It's been a long week. A uh, default mode network. Uh, I said, hey, Danny, I think that um, tensor imaging, DTI, might be either building the story or modifying the story we have with the default mode network. And uh, do you want to describe what DTI is and how it might be affecting what we know with, uh, with this story that we've started so far? Yeah, absolutely. So DTI, diffuser tensor imaging, is one way that we can map the white matter of the brain, the myelination. It, has to do with measuring the dipoles in water and it measures the diffusion speeds and that through a lot of really smart people and good math figures out a way to map tracts or they call it tractography which is a great name and through that they have been able to identify and kind of correlate back up the default mode network and in conjunction with fMRI studies that we'd already talked about they can, they've shown that of, of, of the tracks that we are very familiar with, it seems to have the highest structure function relationship. So when we go between the different nodes and locations and we're tracking the tracts, 
that there's a strong correlation using fMRI and the tensor imaging. So that, that correlation, um, does that mean that if you have somebody that has a lesion in one of those tracks, that the, the function is more clearly changed in that network compared to other things? Or are you saying something else? Because I'm not sure I know what you mean by that correlation. So when saying the structure-function relationship, it seems that there is a that that defined structural network matches the functional pathways that we see associated. Okay. As far as I understood it, and this is one of those times if anyone understands it better, which most people might, that, <laughs> but that when we see in fMRI, that as we're measuring the functional capacities and what's lighting up in those networks, it is matching very closely with what we can map in the tensor imaging as the structural components and that it, it's really closely coordinated. The other part of your question, whether it's a really good relationship, is really interesting and it doesn't always match up that well. We actually see that in children, their functional aspects develop a lot more quickly than the structural aspects of the default mode network. And fMRI imaging can kind of corroborate that that network is developing, though the structural components aren't quite as intact yet. We can see some similar things with uh, TBI. We can see they did some interesting studies after renal transplants, how the recovery in cognition correlated with a faster increase in the functional aspects versus the structural. So it doesn't always correlate that way, but we do know the locations are involved together. The locations and the tracks and the story seems to be fitting together is kind right. of what you took away from the DTI uh, science that has started to build up in conjunction with the fMRI and PET scanning kind of story that, that has been along the way. Okay, right. so imaging, we've talked a little bit about imaging. Now let's talk about the components of that network. Um, and this is really where you, I, I like when I talk to you about it, I kind of get this glazy look in my eyes and I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute, tell me that again. T talk to me about the components of this network. Yeah, so it's going to be a lot more complicated than what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to try to keep it simple and accessible, and also so that I don't mess up the explanation. <laughs> but the, there's kind of two main nodes that are involved in the default mode network. It's the ventral medial prefrontal, prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate and precuneus. And the ventral medial prefrontal cortex is in the front of your brain, and the PCC, um, posterior cingulate cortex, and precuneus are kind of in the back and they talk to each other. Um, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, we'll just talk about its function a little bit. It does a lot of emotional processing, a lot of decision making, it's involved in self-control, risk assessment, and um, it, interestingly, I saw in a study, it stays more active with higher performance anxiety. And it, if it's active when you're doing a task, you're gonna do worse on that task. So. So hold on, say those again. So the ventral medial prefrontal cortex uh -huh. um, is involved in a lot of emotional processing, decision-making, risk assessment. Uh -huh. um, appears to be more active if you have higher performance anxiety and it's associated with a poorer performance on whatever thing you're doing, if it's active. So, so I saw something, I think, <laughs> this is where we had so much where we had to go over, yeah. right? I think one of the things I read was that you see decreased activation proportional to the anxiety and that you saw increased activation that was proportional to uh, like an autonomic fight or flight system. That would make sense because it's involved in um, receiving sort of like autonomic input or sensory input from your body and processing mm -hmm. that and trying right. to decide what it means. Right, but I would think of anxiety as being uh, more akin to an increased activation state, so I don't know why I have it as a decreased activation state. See, this is this is what happens when neuroscientists or non-neuroscientists try to do neuroscience, but maybe somebody can uh, can contact us and correct us. But yeah. yeah, so that's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. The dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is often lumped together with it, and it does a lot of um, self-referential judgments, um, processes your sense of self, and it's a little bit more socially focused functions um, in that regard. 
And then um, the PCC and precuneus are um, a little bit more involved with memory retrieval. So um, they're connected to the hippocampus and they are involved in episodic memory retrieval, which is like specific memories of your sixth birthday or whatever, versus like facts that you just know that aren't connected to an episodic memory. Um, they also do autobiographical information retrieval. Um, it's also involved in your theory of mind. So when you're considering other people and what they might be thinking, um, these parts of your brain are recruited as well. Uh, another interesting thing that I saw was um, that the PCC and precuneates um, have a diurnal variation such that um, they're connected to the hippocampus, but it's a lot more active, that connection at night, than it is in the morning. And so um, this could be the biological correlate of lying awake at night thinking of that thing you said that was really dumb. And then when you wake up, it's sort of a little less antagonizing to you. Yeah, I think that was one of the interesting things is cl clearly there's these, the implications of many of the findings are very complicated, right? And, and probably beyond the scope of what I will be ever able to discuss. But it was I, I was left with the impression that you wake up in the morning with a fresh slate, that this uh, PCC in part was designed to help you reflect over the events of the day as well. And so when you go to sleep, that, that sleep resets the PCC for the daily recollection, even though it's involved in, in all the other types of memory you talked about, right? And the, the other thing that I thought was fascinating about this was that this area of the brain, I, I've always been confused by uh, hypoxic events and particularly carbon monoxide events where they seem to have sort of that, um, I, I know those patients no longer have the ability to have new memories laid down, right? They seem to have uh, this that may be related to damage in this area more than to the hippocampus. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that yet, but there was some hints in, in one of the articles that we read that this, this might be an area that's vulnerable to hypoxic events. Yeah, I remember reading that too. Um, and my guess is that in a lot of the studies that we saw, it is very, very metabolically demanding when it's active. And it's kind of tonically active, but um, if it's super metabolically demanding, it's also going to be more vulnerable to hypoxic injury. One of the things that he mentioned a couple of times when we're talking about Reichel still is that the brain comprises 2% of your body weight and 20% of your oxygen consumption, right? So, so the whole brain is, is, is very, very oxygen demanding. So we've talked about these three different divisions. And, and what I also thought was interesting was, at least in 2015, that role of the DMPC, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, it seemed to be a throw-in in his article, right? It wasn't very well described. Um, it just said that this is the self-reflection stuff. And I think you mentioned in an example earlier, it's sort of the, the person who's saying, uh, not daydreaming, this is an active event of the default mode network. Maybe it's daydreaming. Um, we're shrugging here. Um, this is the person who's kind of reflecting over, should I have said something differently when I was working on the podcast with my students? Did I say something that was offensive to Danny and make him want to hit me? He's kind of a lot stronger than I am and could crush me with his bare hands. Um, you know, those kinds of things are wandering th not wandering through my mind, but that's the active part of the default mode network. I think that leads probably with those three items, that leads to another thing to discuss. We talked about tasks increasing the activity of a certain area, we get increased blood flow and increased metabolism in those areas. And um, we see a reduction in the activity in the default mode. So I, I think Reichel is very careful about the way he talks about this, but talk to me about the differences between activation and deactivation and reduction and all those kinds of things of the default mode, because I think having the language correct is very important. Yeah, um, so actually quite a few of the articles that I read um, tried to make it clear that it's never really that the default mode network when you're awake is like turned off completely or that the task network is turned off completely. It's more like they're both kind of active all the time. It's just that depending on the task at hand, one of them will be more active and then the other one will decrease its activity in turn. And then you can kind of go 
back and forth between your internal thoughts and doing external tasks more effectively. So if the default mode network is active, and I think Reichel makes the case that it's not activated, it's active, and then it becomes less active, right? It's, it's not activated the way that a task area might become, quote, activated. But even that, I think, is a tough distinction to make for me. So, so when the default mode network is active, we talked about the different kinds of things that might be happening. Would you have like a summary of those statements from the three different components, or is there like a way that people generally talk about the default mode network being active that might be a summary statement for people beyond the individual components, or should we stick with the individual components? How, how would you? Like, are you asking what kind of cognitions are happening when the default mode network is active? Yeah, maybe like as a summary, because you went over the cognitions that would be happening with each different component, but I wondered if there's like a, a bigger statement that people kind of agree on this is this is the default mode network. Yeah, I think it really depends on what you're considering too because I know that it can be active in different ways if you're kind of considering a conceptual task uh, maybe in the future or if you're remembering things in the past. So so it's hard to say, but the the way that I've kind of best been able to understand it is like you might think of Think of yourself at a party, right? And then you think you said something really dumb. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. And I hope that person doesn't, you know, think less of me. They don't and crush then, me with their bare hands kind of thing. Yeah. And then, okay. so that would be like your PCC and precuneus, like bringing up that memory. And then if you start to project it into the future, like, oh my gosh, and I have this other social event coming up next week. And I really hope I don't say the same kind of weird thing I did. And, and then this person's going to be there. And I hope that they don't then think of me poorly. That sort of thing is sort of very you are recruiting your default mode network heavily in that kind of cognition. We've talked about default mode network. Um, there was one article, I think Reichel talks about the antithesis or the anti-correlation, which might be the dorsal attention network. I think there are other names for this. And I think all he's doing is describing two states. There are activation states and there are default networks modes, right? There are the two different things and they generally even though he makes the case that they don't exactly one goes up, one goes down. That's not a clear way of thinking about it. But generally speaking, there is some shift between the two, right? One becomes more active, the other one becomes less active. Yeah. So like if you're, I, I call it the task positive network, but I think the dorsal attention network is the same thing. It, it is. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Yeah. Um, and when that is active, your default mode network activity is going to be dampened. And so if you think about like if you're trying to solve a complex math problem or you're trying to build some furniture, you're not necessarily thinking these cognitions that I gave an example of before. Um, you're focusing on the external task at hand, right? And yeah. so it kind of makes sense intuitively if you think of it that way. I think he used the phrase lost in work. Yeah, right? so you kind of forget yourself. Sometimes people think of the default mode network as your sense of self. Um, I think it's, it's obviously more complicated than that, but it's an easy heuristic. So when you get lost in your work in a task, you kind of forget yourself, and that's kind of your default mode network going away while you are very, very focused on the task at hand. Quite often in uh, treatment of our patients with um, schizophrenia and with borderline personality disorder, we would like our patients to become lost in a task. And I think we're gonna talk a little bit about um, how these things might have implications for those kinds of conditions in a few minutes. Before we get there though, how does your brain know to switch between tasks? You've mentioned, I think, a salience network. Talk to me more about the salience network. Yeah, <clears throat> so this kind of comes from a triple model network of the brain where you have the default mode network, the task positive network, that are sort of reciprocally activated or deactivated. And the salience network is kind of what mediates the switch between the two. It's sort of like a gear switch is my understanding. And um, it basically switches your attention between the external focus, which is the task positive network, and your internal focus, which is the default mode. And depending on what kind of stimuli are around, um, you'll be in either one of these states. So like if somebody starts throwing a ball at your face, your attention is going to be switched to blocking that ball, right? And so my understanding is the salience network mediates that switch. Where, where's the salience network located? I think it's the right anterior insula, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> we will not quote you on that. <laughs> and there is some interesting 
information going back to those tensor imaging studies that corroborate that story after a TBI where there has been shown to be some structural damage to where we know the salience network to be we can see fMRI imaging showing that there's difficulty turning off the default mode network so structural damage to the salience network affects the functional capacity of the default mode network. How does that manifest? I mean, in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, so does that mean distraction? Or does that mean uh, not able to stay on task? We do have a few examples we will go over later in specific disorders. Um, and we could go over those now. But that's how I understand it, is that if you can't turn off your wandering focus or your wandering thoughts then it's pretty hard to get into your focused thoughts yeah and this might be part of why we see a loss of cognitive performance in certain um, conditions because it seems like in many conditions the default mode network is not deactivating as much as it normally should when someone's trying to do a task I, I was left with the impression after reading some of the racial information that um, if you look at cats, the default mode network really isn't that big of a deactivation because what they've been able to do is subtract out like global cellular oxygen use in the brain and so default no, 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 uh, default network mode might not be as big a like dampening as we thought, but is that something that you read through and made sense to you? Because it didn't make as much sense to me as I needed it I to. Didn't see it. I didn't see any studies about animals, but I can imagine that animals do not have as robust a sense of self as we do. And so that might not require as much dampening. You're not speaking necessarily for me or all, all animals that I may know because I might not fit that category, <laughs> but... Moving on from there. So salience network, insula. Um, we did have a discussion about Phineas Gage in one of the previous podcasts. I don't know if either of you guys have heard that podcast. Were you part of one of those? I don't know. I know his story, but... Yeah, so everybody knows his story, but uh, they one of the articles made the case that the... Um, I think it was a tampening rod, right, that blew up and went through his brain. Um, they make the case that it went through the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and that one of the challenges that Phineas Gage had was that uh, his default mode network was disrupted. We'll see if that comes up here in a few minutes or not. So, so the next step for this is the role in illnesses. And then, um, Miles, if you're listening, <laughs> you're going to be referenced again in a few minutes. And Miles is a wonderful student that I had here before. We have many, many great students that roll through here. And uh, Miles, I think, desperately wanted yoga to be a treatment for PTSD. PTSD. And uh, we're going to talk about maybe some of the neural neurological underpinnings of why yoga might? Yeah. No, meditation. The mindfulness aspect of yoga could be a adjunctive treatment for certain conditions. And just to keep Miles listening, we're going to hold off on that, right? We're going to talk <laughs> yeah. about schizophrenia first? Yes. So that I can get self-gratification early because that's where I, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about <laughs> schizophrenia. All right, so talk to me about schizophrenia. Yeah, so like we were talking about before with the triple model network of the brain, um, it looks like in schizophrenia, um, their salience network uh, is not functioning quite as well as maybe it should. And so there is a loss of anti-correlation between the task positive network and the default mode network. So basically, if they're trying to do a task, their default mode network doesn't necessarily deactivate and in some cases increases in activity. Um, and Nobody can truly say for sure because you can't be in the mind of someone with schizophrenia, but um, there seems to be the postulation that they have difficulty discriminating between external and internal stimuli. And so, and there is a greater sort of focus on internal stimuli. So if we think about the default mode network as being a network involved in what's me and the task and activation network or the, uh, the DAN, the TPN, whatever, language we want to use being the external network the external network sounds like it's getting confused with the internal network so to speak and the the delineation of what's me and not me starts to get kind of fuzzier yeah. that's interesting because i think that does go back to the original description of the word schizophrenia right split psyche if i remember correctly mm -hmm. yeah or I wonder if i have that yeah. right 
Yeah, yeah, that's Greek. Greek? Yeah, okay. it, was a, it was classics major. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> I, I wish you could have all seen how she just flipped her hair and smiled here. Proudly. It, it was... Uh, I wish this was like a, a video, a vlog instead of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would have been pretty solid. All right, so uh, depression next. Um, okay, so d in depression, um, it seems that there's increased connectivity between certain areas of the default mode network. Um, it also has, in depression, people also have difficulty dampening their default mode network, but in addition, there is particularly increased connectivity between the medial prefrontal cortex, and I think that includes both dorsal and ventral, um, and um, some medial temporal default mode network regions, um, which are centered on the hippocampus. And this is thought to contribute to a lot of the negative ruminative self-referential cognitions that are really common in major, major depressive disorder. And um, if you've ever talked to a very depressed person, which, I mean, I know Dr. Roundy has, um, but a lot of times it seems like their cognitions and what they tell you is very kind of self-focused and very self-negative and, and very like intensely self-judgmental things that they say, and that could be a reflection of this increased activity um, and connectivity between these parts of their default mode network. Man, I, 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 I'm just sitting here thinking about this, and I'm like, okay, I kind of want this to be, okay, what, what receptor is this that I can, you know, pound with a, with a medication to change this? And uh, I, I don't think there's really a description of how you would modify the way the brain interacts, is there? Well, they have found that in ECT, this um, increased connectivity and activity seems to decrease after that treatment. And it seems to get a little bit more normalized with antidepressants. So there are treatments that we've been doing that maybe make use of this um, therapeutic, like... So it almost becomes a biomarker of sorts. Yeah. It, it might be part of the problem. So I think I, I watched an NIH pod, podcast video conference something, and they made the case that a true biomarker needed to be consistent with the illness, that it was part of the illness process, and that it responded to the intervention, right, that you could measure the progress in the illness by the change in the biomarker. You're making the case that this could be a true biomarker for treatment of depression. Yeah. Um, that seems to be what's going on in the research right now. Um, I think fMRI is, well, Danny can talk about this since this is kind of his topic. But um, yeah, it seems to be that there's a growing body of research that um, can confirm pretty consistently certain dysregulations in the default mode network um, and it being consistent across different psychiatric disorders. So I'm ready to use this now. I'm ready to check all of my patients who tell me they're depressed to look at default mode network. Danny, how practical is that? So practical. <laughs> Price and money uh, excluded. No. Uh, they're, they're <laughs> so just to be clear, not practical. Not right? so practical. Okay. But uh, if you know we ever managed to get some uh, handheld fMRI Devices in the future, maybe. That are as cheap as ultrasound? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, maybe someday. Probably not. Not immediately, at least. Not okay. immediately. So, so, diagnostic utility. Is there a role for diagnosis? Absolutely, there is a role for diagnosis. There, just to go through a few of the different diagnoses that fMRI seems to have enough predictive value in, there's we have uh, schizophrenia, anxiety, depression, autism, ADHD, and Alzheimer's is the most heavily studied with the most amount of data backing it, it seems, in Alzheimer's disease in the default mode network. My understanding is um, from the article we read, Kristen, that uh, maybe even at that point, uh, Reichel was seeing that posterior aspect of the default mode network being particularly visible uh, to him because of how different it was than the other uh, scans he was reading in terms of dementia. So, so there seemed to be some evidence even 25 years ago about that. Does that sound, did I read that correctly? Yeah, everything that I saw um, said that the, the, the PCC and the precuneus um, 
was kind of the most obviously associated with default mode network activation and most obviously um, dysfunctional in Alzheimer's in dementia. Um, it seems like there's a lot less metabolic activity that happens there and a lot less connectivity that happens there even before the person has symptoms of Alzheimer's and can be predictive before that person has symptoms. Danny, you mentioned that uh, there are a number of fields where you could diagnose using uh, fMRI to, to try and assess functionality. My understanding is that only recently was uh, Alzheimer's disease given an FDA approval to use, uh, F I think, fMRI to diagnose that, but I think there's a specific molecule that they use to radio label and get that signal. Is that something that you looked into? I hadn't looked into that. I had heard that before with our specific molecules being radio labeled, and it's, I can't remember the name. It would probably be part of one of the plaque. Seemed like it was proteins. related to one of the plaque proteins that it, that it bound to. H having said that, though, I don't think any of the, I, I don't think there's anything that is now diagnostically approved for, it's, nothing is funded by Medicaid at this point to be able to use diagnostically is my understanding. Right. Okay. True. The, the interesting thing with Alzheimer's as well is because it is a disease involved with that plaque deposition and fMRI is so related to the delivery of oxygenated blood that could also show how there's decreased delivery of oxygenated blood to these areas. In a lot of these areas, there is significant anatomic overlap with the default mode network. They're in using fMRI, when, when they compared against healthy elderly subjects, using fMRI techniques scanning the default mode network, essentially, there is an 85% sensitivity and a 77% specificity. That's bad. Which isn't perfect. <laughs> no, that's. I think that's. The, I think where I come from, they call that bad. Right. Well, it gets. It gets a little even more bad. <laughs> um, but still, a good direction when analyzing early detection for Alzheimer's disease. So might give you a heads up on it then. Yeah, it was a seventy-seven point three percent sensitivity and seventy percent specificity. That was before symptoms had started to manifest. It's worse than throwing a dart at a dartboard, though, if I remember correctly. It's close to worse, or worse, depending on your aim. <laughs> I guess if your so, eyes are closed, you're so, not. So the challenge is, we have a signal that we're seeing, um, and that signal might be something that allows us to further understand the brain at some point and have a better way of identifying early onset Alzheimer's disease or perhaps other dementias. In other words, it sounds like this is a, a technology that's helping us at the moment probably better understand the brain and the connections rather than something that's helping us diagnose and treat. Right. Well, and th there is some utility in schizophrenia, for example, on the treatment. This was another one that involved part of the uh, tensor imaging and fMRI uh, in the PCC and precuneus and its connection with the medial prefrontal cortex. That there was uh, studying the fMRIs and tensor imaging, there seemed to be a correlated improvement, a statistically significant correlation in improvement in positive symptoms in schizophrenia and improvement in the default mode network, but no real correlation in negative symptoms, which is the worst predictive you, factor. You mentioned something when we were talking about this preparatorily, about changes in myelination associated with, with risperidone use? Yes, and there was one paper by Zong et al. Uh, that was specifically was on risperidone use that did say show that there was uh, that significant that they said that it was specific enough to be used as a biomarker for improvement in symptoms in schizophrenia. Interestingly, though, her paper was the only one of four that I looked at regarding treatment of schizophrenia with different medications. Hers was the only one that didn't show structural improvement with the tensor imaging. Other three papers also showed structural and functional improvement. Hers did not. So one out of four. 
and her showed her showed functional or structural her showed functional functional so, so fMRI showed greater activity but that the tensor imaging didn't necessarily show an increase in the density of the fibers in those pathways and the other studies only looked at function not structure they, they also looked at structure and did show that there was an improvement so one out of four that's not I don't know if that's quite enough to I don't I don't know how many other studies have been done so these are just four that I looked at so there is some evidence growing that perhaps the antipsychotic medications um, and, and again I don't know that this will be used as a biomarker in the future but it might be something that helps us elucidate why antipsychotic medications rather than just hitting that dopamine 2 receptor might have some impact on changing functionality in people and I, I think when we talk about uh, rebuilding myelin sheaths um, if that's truly what's happening the, the increased stability of those tracks why that would happen is kind of a mystery to me, and maybe that's something that we'll find out more over time. Hopefully. I'm very fascinated by Hopefully that. Hopefully so, yeah. Uh, let's see, I think Miles would be next on the agenda. I'll have to text <laughs> him and let him know that we talked about him in the last couple of podcasts. And Kristen, if you don't know Miles, uh, you're you know Miles. You, you know Miles. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not know Miles? How can you not know Miles? Uh, Miles, this is uh, not for you, this is for Kristen, but we thought you'd be very interested in this. So Kristen, talk to me about default mode network, India, Hindu traditions, and... Uh, Meditation. Please. Yes. So, um, interestingly, and I'm getting very kind of out of my element here, I am not super familiar with Eastern philosophies and religions, but from what I can understand, um, in a Hindu context, um, it seems like they've known about the default mode network for thousands of years and maybe just used a spiritual vocabulary to describe it. And one might refer to the default mode network in this context as ego. Um, these are kind of your spontaneous, mostly self-referential cognitions, your in-brain narrator, and in meditation, a lot of your effort is focused on sort of Noticing and dismissing these cognitions. So, just for an example, because I have um, never meditated, <laughs> you're saying that perhaps I would be in a contemplative state considering, did I say the wrong thing at that party? And then I would say, either yes I did, check it's off the list, or no, I didn't check it's off the list, or is it different than that? Uh, I'm not an expert meditator. I have meditated. Um, and from my understanding, it's you kind of don't judge the thought at all. Mm -hmm. And you just say, I acknowledge that you're here, and now I'm dismissing you. And then you focus on your breathing, focus on whatever thing you're focusing like, on. Like watching clouds you. float by in the sky. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, like, listening to one of my attendants. <laughs> I acknowledge you're here as a student, and I am dismissing you. <laughs> I sincerely hope that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, but in meditation, it's one of the main forms is focused attention meditation, and that is where you classically focus on your breathing mm -hmm. to kind of get away from the thoughts. From my understanding, the goal is to kind of not have thoughts. So would this be then a task-based activity that would yes. dampen the default mode? So you're network? focusing okay. kind of on an external stimulus. There's, you can focus on your breathing. There's things called sound meditations. You can focus on sounds that you hear. There's all kinds of ways to do this, but it usually involves um, redirecting your attention to some sort of external stimulus. Would video games count? If it were Zelda, would it count? Um, maybe <laughs> if you're playing Breath of the Wild. Oh. Okay. Now, is that backed up by science, or is this wishful thinking? Probably? I will volunteer for that study. If Got it. it. Hasn't been done yet. <laughs> I'll volunteer for the World of Warcraft one. <laughs> okay, good. All right, so just to be clear, nobody has talked about video games as being a form of meditation. I'm sure somebody has. That we're aware of. This yeah. isn't mainstream. Okay, so, so on that note, just to clarify, anybody that might be hoping what we're saying makes sense <laughs> with meditation and video games, do not go there with us. All right, go ahead. So um, so the idea there from what I get is that meditation is focused on sort of um, disengaging your default mode network when it's not necessary. And you get, it's kind of like taking your brain to the gym and practicing like shutting off your default mode network. 
and it's very helpful for people who like have ADHD or very intense mind wandering or people with depression because it teaches them how to manually just brute force turn that off. Okay, hold and on. What is mind wandering? Did you say the phrase mind mind wandering? I meant to say wandering. Wandering. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like. Wow, I'm so far behind the times. I yeah, I'm from the Midwest, and so sometimes I talk really fast. So sorry. That was me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the idea is that you're practicing this, like the whole idea of meditation. Every time that you dismiss a thought, it's like doing one rep and turning your default mode network off. And so you get very practiced at this. And then it becomes easier if you're out in the world and you have a negative thought, it becomes much easier to acknowledge it and let it go away so that you don't get caught up in it. And it seems to be that this is very useful for people with the ruminative um, thoughts in major depression. Speaking of major depression, that might be a good time to add that there is good evidence using fMRIs. I didn't see anything with tensor imaging necessarily, but fMRIs, a significant correlation with symptom reduction in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex function. And as they're scanning the DMN and, the, and depression, and specifically in Dinepazil, there's an increased blood flow to the uh, PCC and afterwards they could see more healthy level what would resemble a healthy brain in the dorsal medial or not the dorsal medial the default mode network so hold on you're talking about donepazil uh and the treatment of depression and not dementia right right I and this could be a possible mechanism um, to yes it. interesting uh, well, that would certainly explain some of the things about pseudodementia, right? If you have the inactivity of the same areas that become inactive with dementia, right? right. Um, very interesting. Um, okay, what have we not talked about that we had hoped to cover? Um, if we wanted to go further down the meditation hole, um, there are several different kinds of meditation. I'm ready. <laughs> and I think Miles will appreciate this. <laughs> so what I just talked about is focused attention meditation, which involves just um, focusing your attention, redirecting your attention to some current stimulus. And then um, there's also open monitoring meditation as well as loving kindness. Those are kind of the big three. And um, they did put people in an fMRI machine to see what was happening in their brain when they did these different kinds of um, meditation. And what they found was that um, usually you need to start with focused attention to, to get your brain sort of at a baseline kind of skill for silencing the de default mode network. And then with open awareness, it's sort of like you don't necessarily focus too much on an external stimulus, but you... You're allowed to have internal cognitions, but you have them without judging them or getting caught up in them. Um, and then loving kindness meditation, which I've never done, so so I don't really know how it works, but you focus on um, feelings. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that sounded funny. I apologize. <laughs> um, you focus on feelings of compassion and kindness for people. Um, so from what I understand is, different parts of the default mode network get recruited during these kinds of meditation. So it's sort of like fo focused awareness kind of gets you to separate the task positive network and the default mode network and, and get comfortable switching between the two. Um, open awareness and loving kindness starts reintroducing aspects of the default mode network um, in a way that's a little bit more conducive to a happy life, I guess you could say less less maladaptive if that makes sense that that was the idea that i got from the study that i read i don't know i'm still laughing about <laughs> loving uh, meditation i'm not familiar with this <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day i'll get there i don't know um anything else that we haven't covered that's the main stuff that i wanted to cover all right so let me see if i have the big picture because i think for me I had a sense of default mode network is kind of whatever's happening when you're not on a task. And that's a fairly close description, but I think there's a lot more nuance to this. I think the nuance is that there's a lot happening 
all the time with your brain that is, in a sense, a task. And when you have an externally directed task, that internal task series can settle down and you can focus uh, your attention to something outwardly. Now, I know that the uh, Reichel and probably many others would say something very differently, but I feel like that's my take home on this, that there are two systems that work hand in hand that collaborate to sort of seed attention mediated by perhaps the insula, it appears, uh, which is the salience network to tell you which of those is most important at the moment. And um, the implications are that these networks, um, when there's something maladaptive in the brain, probably it's not the network causing the problem, but it's probably something in the brain that's not functioning in the way that would be expected that can be manifest by the changes in the default mode network and perhaps even in task activation, right? But, But generally speaking, in the way that the brain is using oxygen to perform tasks in the specific areas of the brain. How close am I? That, it seemed like a great explanation to me. And if we're going to do meditation, there's a theoretical understanding of why meditation might help change depression. Okay. Not necessarily PTSD yet. Not we're waiting yet. for that data. Yeah. Miles. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get there. All right. Uh, so that's my take home. Danny, what's your take home? It's one of those topics when Kristen first brought it up, I wanted there to be a lot of scientific backing to be like, that would be great if there's this network that's, you know, kind of our off switch, it sounded cool. And it turned out there was quite a bit of backing, both a a lot of anatomic and functional findings. We found that if you're have depression, you have a harder time turning it off and that it seemed to be a significantly statistically significant correlate and so that that was good to see and maybe some of the numbers aren't like specificity and sensitivity on some aspects aren't quite there yet it it could point us in a good direction and maybe we'll continue to get better and see what it could do in the future maybe help differentiate different specific types of depression yeah that'd be really nice I, i think speaking to what you're talking about there was a comment in one of the articles that I looked at that said because a certain part of the default mode network had been less active during depression, there had been, I think, some studies looking at placing brain stimulators in that area, mm. and that it had worked. Mm. So, so there's something about this that is opening up ideas for us. It's opening up understanding of the brain. We know much more about this than we did, I think, 25, 30 years ago when they were figuring out this complicated story between the not linear relationship between blood flow and you know whatever else to understand what's active and not active, right? That was 35 years ago, and now they're talking about things that are well beyond that. So, so I love the direction. I think we're on to. I think the scientists studying this are, are finding things that are really remarkably cool about the brain, and mm-hmm. I, I look forward to see where this still goes. Yeah, absolutely. L- love love what you're saying, and hopefully it has some diagnostic meaning for us at some point. Right. Kristen, what's your uh, final say? Final say, maybe a takeaway? Yeah. Um, I guess the reason I like this topic so much is because I have a hard time buying into something if I don't understand it. And with the mind, sometimes it feels like everything is so subjective and nebulous, and it's like, is it even real? And so when I see studies like this, it makes it much more real to me. And um, I would hope that it also helps patients who might be suffering with some of these things understand it a little bit better and then be able to distance their sense of self from it, if that makes sense. So you're hoping that being able to understand this more allows you a better way to talk to patients about focusing less on the ruminative negative cognitions that are associated with their state. Yeah, like if I were a patient, I I think I would appreciate hearing oh, you know, your dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is just way too active. And, and we'll try to figure out a way to fix that. It's not that you are bad or you're, a, like, you're, you're wrong or you're broken. It's, there's just, you know, your brain has a part of it that needs a little tweaking. And, you know, hopefully in years in the future, we'll have treatments for that. I, I, I haven't looked at this, but I do think that there are some studies that look at meditation being helpful in depression. And so I think this is more of a mechanistic description than it is about solutions. So I think those solutions are even maybe there. Maybe. 
have to have to look that up. Maybe I can get Miles to do that for me. <laughs> we'll see if he comes back for a fourth year rotation. Uh, anything else that you would add? Yeah, very, very cool topic. I feel uh, like even though I'm more aware of it, it seems like it's sort of like all of those things where the more you dig into it, the more you realize there's a lot more to know and it's uh, those uh, connections in the brain are even more sophisticated than we understood originally, it, it seems. And that you know, neuroanatomy, the bane of my existence, right? I struggle with uh, visual-spatial stuff. That's, that's uh, hard for me. So it, talking about systems and ideas, that, that helps me start to put that neuroanatomy into a more meaningful place. So even if I can't point to where the posterior cingulate is easily, without my netter's atlas. I can say, ah, that's part of the posterior default mode network, right? I, I know what that does, and that's a significant part of what might be found in dementia or so forth, right? So I really like this. It, it helped me be better at, at my understanding and gave me ideas about why I might continue to try and do some things with refocusing uh, and uh, why that might be helpful, right? And kind of cool to see where that may end up going. On that note, guys, thank you so much. Uh, wonderfully done. And your last day is sort of tomorrow and sort of Thursday, right? I, I would consider it Thursday. Yeah, we'll, we will be able to uh, be participating in some medication hearings as part of your uh, training. And I'm kind of looking forward to that. I think you'll have a good time with that. On that note, guys, thank you so much for a very good rotation, both of you. Uh, thanks for being so helpful on the unit, working with the patients the way you have, and improving my knowledge of mental health so that I can um, be better at what I do. Thank you so much. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out.